It's TechBiter Worldwide with Bill Flynn. The latest on programs and policies, helpful hints, and a bit of occasional nonsense. All in more or less plain English. Podcast number 812 for the 30th of September, 2022. This week, you're careful not to drop your notebook computer into the ocean or down a flight of stairs, but heat is the insidious destroyer of all electronic devices. In short circuits, ordering groceries online with curbside pickup or home delivery made big advances during the worst months of the COVID pandemic. Growth has slowed, but not stopped. Big chains have gone all in and smaller stores are struggling to stay in the game. Windows updates interrupt us. Sometimes they annoy us, but if you're tempted to skip the updates, think again. And 20 years ago, only on the website, having a device that could hold 64 megabytes of data and yet was about the size of a pack of gum seemed amazing in 2002. And it was. Floppy disks were still around and you'd need a huge pocket to carry 64 megabytes of data on floppies. Short of dropping a notebook computer down a flight of stairs or spilling a pint of your favorite beer on it, allowing the machine to overheat is about the worst thing you can do to it. Heat is the mortal enemy of any electronic device, but computers don't sweat. So how would you know if it's too hot? And if it's too hot, how do you cool it? This is primarily about notebook computers because notebook computers have become more popular than desktop systems. Just about anything that can be done to lower a notebook computer's temperature can be done to a desktop system, too. You need to find out how hot the computer is before you can fix any problems. One of the better utilities for this task is Open Hardware Monitor. I'll get back to it in just a bit, but first let's consider heat management. You can't just stick a thermometer into a desktop computer case. That would measure the air temperature inside the box. But keep in mind that individual components can be operating at different temperatures. Even within the CPU, each core will report a different temperature, sometimes varying by 20 degrees Celsius, even though the cores are within millimeters of each other. Disk drives and memory may have temperature sensors too, that thermometer you could shove into a desktop computer case even though it wouldn't do any good couldn't even be inserted into a notebook computer. There just isn't room. So you need to sniff out the temperatures for each component and compare them to the acceptable operating temperatures. Many CPUs are set to begin throttling performance when they reach 100 degrees centigrade. That's the thermal junction maximum, or TJ Max. It's okay to start with that number, but it's better to check the specifications for your computer's CPU, just to be sure. You'll need to know what CPU is installed in the computer, so open Settings, select System, and then choose About, and copy the information from the processor line. For an Intel chip, look up the model and generation for the processor, and then select the processor model. You'll find a link to Intel's site on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Scroll down to find the T-junction specification. For my computer, it's 100 degrees centigrade. That's the number you'll find for most modern CPUs, but skip that step at your computer's peril. 
For an AMD processor, visit AMD's website and look for your processor's name. Then search for the precise processor. You'll find the maximum operating temperature, TJ Maxx, in the general specifications section. The AMD Ryzen Threadripper Pro 5995WX, for example, has a maximum operating temperature of 95 degrees centigrade, not 100. It's essential to understand that maximum means just that, maximum. The CPU should not be operated continuously at or near TJ Maxx. If you find that the CPU cores in your computer are routinely running hotter than 60 to 70 degrees Celsius, there's probably a problem. Why are we using Celsius? Well, the United States, unlike the rest of the planet, insists on using the old imperial measures. Automotive, scientific, and computer industries all use the metric system. Instead of writing 100 degrees centigrade, I could write 212 degrees Fahrenheit. But you won't find imperial measurements in computer specifications. Let's all speak the same language. Although other applications exist that measure more than Open Hardware Monitor does, I like this application's ability to write a log file at an interval of the user's choosing. I have found 30 to 60 seconds to be a good choice. Smaller values provide too much data, and longer values risk losing brief high-temperature incidents. But another good choice is HWINFO. It's free for non-commercial use. HWINFO also includes information about disk drives using data from smart sensors, the self-monitoring analysis and reporting technology. Smart is included with most modern hard drives and solid-state drives. Smart is intended to anticipate imminent hardware failures. Disk drives should generally operate in the 40 to 60 degrees Celsius range. Anything over 70 degrees Celsius should be considered problematic. So then what do you do if you find a problem? Well, I've had problems with an overheating notebook computer, and one of the easiest fixes involves elevating the computer. Air intake vents are typically on the bottom of the computer case, and these are partially blocked when the computer sits on a desk. A $25 laptop stand makes it possible for the computer to breathe. For desktop systems, you might need to consider installing additional fans or replacing the existing fan with a more powerful one. Whether the computer is a notebook or a desktop machine, check the vents for dust and other obstructions. A vacuum cleaner can help. Sometimes compressed air might be useful too. And listen to the computer. If any of the fans sound like they're laboring, replacement is wise. This is much easier with a desktop system, but I have accomplished it with notebook computers too. For older computers, consider removing the fan or cooling fins on the CPU and replacing the thermal paste. The CPU and possibly other components will have an attached heatsink, possibly with a fan. Thermal paste will be between the component and the heatsink or fan. The paste helps pull the heat away from the component, but it becomes less effective with age. This is another task that's a lot easier with a desktop system, but again, it can be done with a notebook. You just have to be really careful and understand exactly what you're doing. Fortunately, there are a lot of good videos on YouTube that show disassembly and reassembly of a lot of laptop models. So you'll be disassembling the computer to gain access to the component, then you clean it with a solvent such as ArctiClean, apply new thermal paste, and then reassemble the system. You may also want to consider modifying the computer's power settings. 
giving preference to power saving will reduce the computer's temperature, but it'll also reduce its performance. In Windows 10 or 11, start with the control panel and type power in the search field, then choose edit power plan. This will open the old style settings panel. Choose change advanced power settings and click processor power management. Here, you can modify the maximum processor state to be less than 100%. Now, this is the least desirable option because it will reduce the computer's performance. Even so, a computer that operates more slowly than desired is still better than a computer that operates not at all because it overheated and died. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. In short circuits, when grocery stores started offering online ordering with parking lot pickup, my wife and I couldn't really see any advantage. Would we want somebody else to select our fruits and vegetables? Maybe this would appeal to some people, we thought, but not to us. Then 2020 happened. We started shopping online. Initially, the results weren't particularly good. We ordered things, and sometimes we got them. We became philosophical about the results. We get what we get became our policy. Two years later, online grocery shopping is still going strong. We do occasionally go inside a store, but most of the time we order online and pick up the order at the store. The stores are all in, too. Kroger has purchased a fleet of delivery vans. Instacart allows smaller stores such as Mark's, a northeast Ohio chain with just two stores in the Columbus area, along with Fresh Time or Wyland's Market to offer delivery. There seem to be parallels between workers not particularly wanting to spend time driving to and from the office every day and shoppers not particularly wanting to spend time driving to and from grocery stores. That doesn't mean everyone is on the bandwagon. It's not uncommon for me to find just one or two other customers waiting for an order when I visit one of the stores we use. Sometimes there's nobody else waiting. Superfood Digital, a company that researches grocery store trends, says the COVID pandemic pushed a lot of consumers into using online ordering. Insider Intelligence says digital grocery shopping will be a $243 billion market in the U.S. by 2025. A report from April says digital grocery buyers account for more than half of the U.S. population. Because of this, retailers are rushing to respond. Amazon Fresh will open dozens of new brick-and-mortar stores across the country over the next few years. The report also says ultra-fast grocery startups promising drop offs in as little as 15 minutes are pushing past substantial losses in an already competitive marketplace, and it says they are exploring new revenue streams. And the report notes that major players such as Uber Eats and GoPuff are expanding their service grants for grocery delivery.
The leaders are Walmart and Sam's Club. They edged Amazon into second place in 2019. Kroger is a distant third. Target and Albertsons are nearly tied for fourth and fifth places. Statista says U.S. food and beverage retail e-commerce revenue will exceed $24 billion by 2023. The online grocery customer base counts roughly 150 million American shoppers and will continue to grow. Online grocery purchase for pickup still lags far behind in-store purchases, and the number of delivered orders is even smaller. But growth seems inevitable. Forrester Research says online growth has slowed in many categories, fresh and frozen particularly. Panic shopping during the worst of the pandemic pushed online shopping, so adoption of what might be the new normal is slower than it was in 2020 and 2021. It's clear that major supermarket chains think online grocery shopping will become a bigger part of our lives. Many of the large chains have redesigned their stores so that their own shoppers can collect customers' orders faster. But all of this change is expensive, and grocery stores already operate on exceedingly thin margins. Most grocery stores offer free pickup if the order exceeds a certain amount, often $35. Previously, many stores set that minimum at $25 for a free pickup. Those who want home delivery usually need to order more, and there may be a delivery fee regardless of the order size. Stores such as Mark's with just two locations in Columbus aren't set up to offer curbside pickup, but they can offer delivery with Instacart. Fees for an Instacart delivery start at $4 for same-day orders. The minimum order is $35. Fees are higher for one-hour deliveries, club store deliveries, and deliveries under $35. Instacart Plus eliminates the delivery fee for orders over $10, but it costs $10 a month or $100 if you pay annually. Instacart also has a minimum suggested tip of 5% for the delivery person, but 15 to 20 percent is recommended. You need to figure that into the overall cost. Brian X. Chen, writing in the New York Times, cautions that it's important to watch for hidden fees from all the delivery services. He cited an order that he'd placed for two Subway sandwiches. I quote, Uber Eats charged me $25.25, including the cost of the meal, a service fee, delivery charge, and a surcharge for placing a small order. That's a 91% markup compared with buying those sandwiches in person. Instacart says that it always shows exactly what the fees will be when the user checks out. Around our house, we'll probably stick with online ordering and curbside pickup. And when we order food from a restaurant, we'll most likely continue to specify curbside pickup and drive to the restaurant. Convenience and time-saving both have value, but how much value they have will doubtless vary from one family to another. Windows updates can seem like a big annoyance. Major updates occur twice a year, in addition to the monthly patch updates and the occasional emergency update. And of course, these updates are in addition to those from applications. There's a temptation to skip the updates, but that's a temptation that should be resisted. 
Adobe Creative Cloud can update any of its many applications at any time, and I've even added an update utility, Patch My PC, that keeps nearly three dozen utilities and other components and programs up to date. It runs every day at 11 a.m. Delaying or ignoring Windows updates is problematic because many of the updates include security fixes. All software has flaws, and some of those flaws can be exploited by malware that crooks manage to get onto your computer. Any update can, of course, create problems for users. This is something I've seen on Windows, Mac OS, and Linux computers. But errors that are introduced as part of an update are usually addressed quickly by the developers. Microsoft's track record with updates is far better than it used to be, and despite the potential for problems, Windows users are almost always better off installing updates sooner rather than later. Occasionally, updates will fail to install properly. When that happens, visiting Microsoft's support site can help. An update in early September failed several times on my primary computer, and the investigation took me to a discussion on the Microsoft site. The solution involved downloading update KB5016691 from the Microsoft Catalog site, renaming it to KB5016691.msu, copying it to the root directory on drive C, and then using the command prompt with administrator rights to install it. To avoid being interrupted when you're working on something important, set active hours. Those are the times during which you don't want to be bothered by updates. By default, Microsoft sets this to the hours between 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. The operating system generally won't be restarted during those hours, but there is an exception. If you turn the computer on at 8 a.m. every day, turn it off at 5 p.m. every day, there is never a time when it can be restarted if it honors the rules. In that case, Windows will eventually insist on restarting the computer, and you can't stop it. That's just one more reason why you should install updates when they become available. No updates are needed to view the 20 years ago section on the TechBiter Worldwide website. In 2002, having a device that could hold 64 megabytes of data and yet was about the size of a pack of gum seemed amazing. It was, of course. You'd need a gigantic pocket to carry 64 megabytes of data on floppies. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn. There's more on the website, techbiter.com, and if you have a question or a comment, use the contact link you'll find there. Stop by again next week for another session.